but if you have your Bibles, yeah, you can turn to Ecclesiastes. Uh, we'll be there. We started it two weeks ago, um, and we'll be continuing uh, with the rest of chapter one. So, um, over thousands of years, um, we as, as humanity, we've increased knowledge and we've accomplished much during our fleeting lives here on earth. We invented planes so that we can travel from one continent to another in a matter of hours. We invented telephones so that in seconds we can hear the voice of someone who's halfway around the globe. We invented medicine so you don't have to die from a disease like pneumonia when you're 18. We've even sent a man to the moon. But has anything of real consequence been accomplished? The earth still revolves around the sun. Uh, the moon revolves around the earth like it did thousands of years ago. People still fight and people still go to war. People die, even if they live a few more years on earth. Man has not accomplished anything of permanent significance. His every work, her every toil, and everything that happens under the sun is an enigma. It is incomprehensible. So that's what we learned last week. And what we'll continue to learn in more detail through this series on Ecclesiastes in the coming months. The leading question of this book is in verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The answer is in the negative. There is no lasting permanent gain from all the labor that man does under the sun. A life under the sun is repetitive. It can be frustrating and it is incomprehensible. One translator has, has put it this way. Ultimate enigma, says the preacher ultimate enigma. All is an enigma. So we're going to look at verses 12 to 18. And the main idea of this section, I would say, is that wisdom cannot solve the enigma of life under heaven. That's the main idea. Wisdom cannot solve the enigma of life under heaven. So I'll read from verses 12 to 18. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The preacher begins a section that culminates at the end of chapter 2. So from chapter 1, verse 12, to the end of chapter 2. And he's seeing if wisdom, pleasure, 
wine, buildings, slaves, power, material possessions, riches, sex, hard work, if any of these things can give him permanent gain or profit for himself. And he repeatedly says that it's an enigma. So all this is leading up to the conclusion in this section, which is uh, chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. And Francis will cover that next time. So I want to go over again um, in verse 12. Who wrote Ecclesiastes? The preacher. In Hebrew, it's uh, Koheleth. The more we understand this preacher, the more I think we'll understand the weight of what he says about the limits of wisdom in this book. So turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 3. We're going to spend some time in 1 Kings chapter 3. So many of you know um, that when Solomon became king, he was given the opportunity to ask God for anything he wanted. God appeared to him in a dream and said, ask what I shall give you. So what does Solomon ask for? I mean, does he ask for long life or an abundance of riches or the life of his enemies? No, he says, give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people. That's uh, verse nine. So God is so pleased with this request that he not only gives Solomon wisdom, he also gives him both riches and honor things that Solomon did not ask for. But notice the exact words that God uses in verse 12, chapter three, 12. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. So this is no small sampling of wisdom. This is unparalleled wisdom. And listen to the testimony of scripture. And in the next chapter, chapter four, verses 29 to 34, this is what it says. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind, like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan, the Ezrahite, and Heman, Calcol, Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Solomon's wisdom and knowledge, according to this text, is incomparable. It is vast. And all these people and kings are coming to hear his wisdom. Who was one of those people? In 1 Kings 10, if you flip um, a few pages over, chapter 10, verse 1, you find that it's um, one person is the queen of Sheba. A thousand years later in Jesus' time, Jesus calls her the queen of the south and says that she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Even Jesus acknowledges the wisdom of Solomon. So back to 1 Kings chapter 10. 
verse 23 to 25, it says, Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Verse 25, every one of them brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. Now, why is this significant? Because this is what the kingdom of God should have looked like. The nation of Israel is finally beginning to fulfill its mission to be a blessing to the nations like it was promised in the Abrahamic covenant. And the nations are now coming to the land of Israel, bringing their treasures with them, and they are learning the great name of Israel's God. And all this is under Solomon's reign, the wisest king on earth at the time. So if there's anybody that we should listen to, then we should listen to what this man has to say about wisdom the preacher who was once the wisest man on earth. So that's to give a little bit more context of the man behind Ecclesiastes. So back in Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse 13, he says, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom, all that is done under heaven. So what is he trying to do? He studies the world and examines how the world works. And he he makes this one observation, verse 13, and it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. NIV calls this unhappy business a heavy burden. NASB says a grievous task. Other translations say a a miserable or burdensome task. We get the picture. We know this to be true. Because in the Garden of Eden, man was created to work. I mean, he was given work to do by God. But because of his sin, creation is cursed. And God says this to Adam in Genesis 3. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you have dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the curse on creation. And in pain, uh, mankind is to work. But notice that God, he is the one who cursed the ground. And this is what the preacher in Ecclesiastes 1 acknowledges. In verse 13, we finally see the first mention of God. And this, I think, is important because this is when you begin to see the first ray of light. This is what will get you out of life's pit of despair and get you onto the path of hopeful living. And this is going to be made evident as the preacher goes on in the book. By mentioning God here, you understand that the preacher, he's not a fatalist, that everything happens by this thing called fate. He's not a nihilist that everything is meaningless. He's not an agnostic saying that you can't know if God exists. He acknowledges that God is sovereign and that he even ordains the unhappy business that he gives to man. So what is this, uh, the preacher's conclusion after he observes all this unhappy business under heaven? He says in verse 14, I've seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity 
in a striving after wind. And we talked about vanity uh, two weeks ago. Um, this word, hebel, in the Hebrew, it, it doesn't mean life is totally empty and meaningless. It's a word that expresses that man is unable to fully understand the realities and enigmas of life. And this can produce in us frustration and puzzlement. The second expression, striving after wind, um, is one that we haven't covered yet. This expression occurs nine times in this book. Uh, but what's interesting is that even though two different verbs for striving is used, translators keep it consistent and say striving after wind, like the ESV, or if you're using the NIV, chasing after the, the wind. Um, in your notes, um, I give you the, the words for those two different verbs, rayon and reut. Rayon is used three times. Um, once without the noun wind. And the other word, reut, is used the other seven times. Okay, so why am I pointing out this difference? Because although there's an overlap in meaning between these two ideas, I think they're nuanced distinctions. It can still add to our understanding of what the preacher is saying. So for example, in verse 17, the less common rayon is used. And that word can mean uh, disposition or thought, thought combined. So combined with the noun wind, th this is what it basically conveys. It means thoughts of wind, meaning that in your mind, you're trying to make sense of the world, um, but you're unable to. Your, your mind is racing, trying to, trying to grasp, trying to understand it, but you just can't. They're, they're windy thoughts. Uh, in verse 14, the more common reut is used. And that word likely comes from a root that means shepherd or graze or tend. So the expression would mean that, that you're trying to understand God's ways in this world. And it's like trying to shepherd or tend the wind. Can't do it. What's significant, and, and this is the, the point that I wanted to make, is that the only other time this root occurs is at the end of the book when it refers to one shepherd. Um, but that connection will be um, further expanded on um, probably later. Um, but for now, um, so sometimes it's windy thoughts. Uh, most times it's shepherding the wind. Uh, the overlapping meaning is clear though. I mean, you can try and try, but you will not be able to fully understand what happens under the sun. The preacher, closes this section with a proverb in verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. And what does this mean? Well, later on chapter seven, verse 13, this is what he, he says. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? So it's very clear that God is the one who um, can make crooked what is straight. So the point of the first line of verse 15 is that nobody, no man by any human effort can make straight what God has made crooked. So what about the second line? What is lacking cannot be counted. So what is lacking is the opposite of gain, of what is profitable. So in other words, this, this could mean that there's so much that is lacking in this world that it cannot be counted. That there's an infinite number of what is 
lacking or deficient in this world. It could mean that, but I think there's another way of understanding this line. And I think it's more preferable because the second line, I think is parallel to the first. So in the same way that what is crooked cannot be made straight by man's effort. So what is lacking cannot be counted as present by man's effort. In other words, what's lacking or absent, it can't be counted as present or supplied by man's effort. So this is the point. There, there's so much that is disordered and inexplicable and wrong in this world. Um, and, and man, we, we can't try to figure it all out. This is reality. This is God's reality, his world. And if we don't accept this reality, if we instead strive and struggle against what God has ordained, both the good and the evil, then life under the sun will prove frustrating, wearisome, and vexing. Okay, but is this really true? You know, at this point, the preacher sets out on a mission, on a task. He says in verse 16, I said in my heart. Chapter 2, verse 1, I said in my heart. I will test you with this and that. And he's using different means to see if man really can't gain under, under the sun. So first is wisdom. You know, surely wisdom and the pursuit of intellect and knowledge will be the answer. It says in verse 16, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. So not only does he seek to know wisdom, he applied his heart to know madness and folly. In what sense? I think chapter 7, verse 25 gives us a clue. He says there, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. So that's the sense in which he knows folly and madness that he knows that it's wicked and it's it's foolish um this makes sense because the preacher he says in chapter 2 verse 13 that there's more gain in wisdom than in folly so in other words he's not discounting wisdom wisdom has a place he's saying wisdom is better than folly but how could he still say that this is striving after wind Chapter 1, verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The more you know, the more you realize how much you don't know. And this is what's frustrating about wisdom if we have the wrong expectations of it. I want to be more specific and give at least three ways that increased wisdom increases sorrow. Uh, according to the preacher in the rest of this book, there are three, at least three limits to wisdom. This is what wisdom can't give you. Number one, you cannot gain exhaustive knowledge. You cannot gain exhaustive knowledge. He says in chapter eight, verses 16 and 17, when I applied my heart to know wisdom, and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil 
and seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Jay Packer, um, in, in his book, Knowing God, you might have read it, he gives this really good illustration of what wisdom is, is not. So you're, you're standing on the platform of a train station, and, and as, as a normal traveler, um, you, you don't know why one train had to, to stop somewhere, why another train had to be rerouted, um, and how all these different trains are coordinated to keep up to a given timetable. Unless... Somebody gives you access to the signal box. That's the, the little the building tower. And, and if you go inside it, that's where you find the control panel. And, and on one of the walls, you see a, a diagram of the entire track layout going in each direction of the station for some miles. So you have this giant map. This is where you can see and know why there are uh, diversions and rerouting and delays to some of the trains. Wisdom is not being given access to the, to the diagram, to the signal box. You don't know why um, there are changes and delays, why, why some trains are rerouted and others stop. Wisdom is saying, true wisdom is saying, I, I don't have access to the signal box, to, to the tower where I can see this map. Beacon, why, why are you at your school uh, and maybe not at the school of your first choice, uh, the school that you really wanted to go to? Or uh, on the, the converse, why are you at the, the school that you wanted to go to? You know, how come you got into the school of your first choice and somebody else didn't? Why are you at Lighthouse and not at another church? And why is your friend at AACF not, not here with us at Lighthouse? I mean, we know general reasons from Scripture because God is working that for your good so that you would be more like Jesus. Um, but, but do we know the, the finer details of, of why this school and not another one? Why you're pursuing business and, and not medicine? And you might think, um, you know, like, I'm, I'm okay not knowing those things. But it gets a lot tougher when it's something that deeply hurts you, when it, when it feels like an unbearable loss. Why did this person in my life have to die, Lord? And why now, why at this time? Or, or why is this relationship so hard? Why is it so difficult to uh, have a close um, understanding relationship with this friend. God, what are you doing? What are you trying to show me? Wisdom can't give us all the reasons, but it will give us what we need to know, and it will tell us who we need to know and who we need to press into, our good shepherd who is all wise and all good. So that's first, um, you, you cannot gain exhaustive knowledge. Second, you cannot escape weariness or death. Because of the curse of Genesis 3, painful toil is unavoidable. Death is inescapable. In chapter 1, verse 8, we've read this earlier, all things, or we read it before, all things are full of weariness. Chapter 2, verse 15, 
Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then I have been so very wise. And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. Both the fool and the wise die. Um, for me, and uh, really I think for all pastors, uh, preparing a message is, is super laborious. Uh, it, it's hard work. And it, it should be hard work. Um, even preparing for this message. But if I'm not careful, um, sermon prep can easily turn into something that takes over. And uh, especially in the past, it could be the only thing that I'm doing other than eating for basically the whole day. Um, and that's, that's not good. Uh, if sermon prep were ultimately for my gain under the sun, and if it's not done in, in true wisdom and in the fear of the Lord, then it will lead to sinful vexation and frustration. And to prevent it from being that way, um, I, I, I need to pray. I need to watch myself. I, I need to ask myself certain questions so that I, I can approach sermon prep with wisdom. Um, I ask, am I enjoying this work, including how hard it is? Or is it leading me to dread? Am I giving this sermon way more weight than it deserves? Am I making it way more important than it really is? Am I remembering the right standard by which this message will be judged by the Lord? That this message is not going to be measured by how polished it is in its rhetoric, um, but how faithful it is in its accurate understanding of God's word, so, so that you guys who hear what will better understand God's truth and, and also, um, I'll be measured by how dependent I am on the Spirit in proclaiming the message. Another question I ask is, am I faithful in my other roles and responsibilities, or are they falling by the wayside because I am so caught up with, with this? I'm, I'm giving way too much time inordinately to, to, the, to the sermon prep. So th this is a struggle that, that I have, and I'm sure that many pastors face as well. What about you? Um, what is it that if you don't approach with true wisdom, what is it that will take away a lot of your time and energy and leave you sinfully frustrated and discontent? Um, I think this could be things that you, you do for fun, actually, and leisure, like playing video games, working out, watching YouTube, Netflix. Um, this could be something social. Um, you, you just want to really have good relationships with friends. This could be work or studying. Everything that you do is about building up your CV, your resume, making it look good so that you can go to grad school or get the job. You're, you're super involved in this club and that club and this student group and that internship and this research and all the while trying to get the best grades. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't do all those things. Um, and I'm not saying you shouldn't feel tired either. Um, again, wisdom tells us that you can't escape weariness. Uh, the point is, while I accept and embrace the, the right kind of, of weariness, the right kind of, of feeling tired, am, am I aware of the wrong kind of weariness, the kind that's expressed in, in sinful frustration and vexation? So I put some questions in your notes to, to help us think through that. Um, it's 
basically uh, what I shared about um, me preparing sermons. So one, um, can you do this activity, uh, even if it's hard, with joy and thankfulness to the Lord? Or does this activity lead you to dread or anxiety? Does your activity consume you so, so that it becomes more important than having a deep, trusting relationship with the Lord? Three, are you measuring faithfulness in your activity according to God's standard or by a false standard? Number four, is your activity hurting your faithfulness in your other roles and responsibilities and how you love God, love others, and carry out the Great Commission? So hopefully those questions will be helpful. So that was number two. Um, you cannot escape weariness or death. Uh, number three, uh, a limit to wisdom. You cannot guarantee an outcome. In other words, you cannot control the outcome. In chapter 7, verses 15 to 16, this is what the preacher says. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? What do you expect out of wisdom? Is, is wisdom a means to control life? So what is a wisdom or knowledge that if we're not careful, we can be unintentionally pursuing for control? So for you guys, in college, it could be career advice from a, a school counselor or from family, relatives, or, or even on internet forums. Following their advice, you're, you're bound to have a rewarding and fulfilling career, right? Or it could be a friend giving you tips for interviews, how to do them well so that you can get the internship, or it could be tips on how to do well in a class that's taught by a certain professor. It should be fine. I mean, you'll, you at least for sure get to the next round of interviews or get the grade that you want, right? Or it could be counsel from an older brother or sister from AA or in the church, counsel on dating, or, um, or counsel on just trying to love someone well in a, in a difficult relationship. As long as you're gentle, humble, and kind, they'll respond the way you would hope them to, right? That's what we might be tempted to think. And it's not wrong for us to desire a fulfilling career, an internship, a good grade, or, or reconciliation or with, a, uh, with a friend. These are good things, good desires, but wisdom will not secure for us these things. So, so how do we know if the wisdom we're seeking is for control? And I would say um, three quick principles. Uh, they're, they're taken from a book called Uprooting Anger. Um, so, I mean, it's on anger, but the, the principles directly apply to this as well. Um, this is how you can identify when a good desire becomes a ruling desire. So number one, are, are you dwelling on it too much? Let's say that you're, um, you're seeking to understand someone well so that you can wisely love this person. Um, but you replay past interactions over and over in your mind in such a way that it's feeding your bitterness and it's giving you more reasons why you're right and the other person is wrong. Number two, are you willing to sin to get this? 
maybe you have an important exam that's coming up, you really need to do well on it. And, and would you just cheat a little bit, um, bend the rules a little bit because, because a lot of your classmates are doing it? Or would you tell a little white lie, um, some exaggeration in an interview so that you, know, you don't look as bad in front of the interviewer? Number three, do you sin when you don't get it? Do you blame others because you didn't get that position? Or are, are you discouraged to a point where, where it's hard for you to see God's goodness and grace through any of it? Those are just some ways that, that we can identify. Maybe I'm seeking wisdom, but it's, it's really for my control. So these are the limits of wisdom. Wisdom, it cannot give you exhaustive knowledge. It, it cannot give you an escape from weariness or death. It cannot give you control so that um, an outcome is guaranteed. And, and here's the main idea again. Wisdom, it, it cannot solve the enig enigma of life under heaven. But wisdom in its right place has great value. It's so much so that the same man who wrote these sobering words about wisdom in Ecclesiastes, the same man writes in Proverbs 4, verses 5 to 7, get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget. Do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. So uh, I recognize that some of us here might be on one side of the spectrum where we're living as though wisdom will, will get us everything. But others of us might be on the other side of the spectrum where, where we need to pursue wisdom more earnestly. So uh, here's the practical application section. Um, and you might notice, if you look at them, that the first part of these points, for example, being human, um, they're, they're the exact same ones that Francis mentioned two weeks ago. The second part um, of these part, uh, yeah, of these application, it's tied specifically to wisdom. So first, being human, um, it means that we should seek God's wisdom earnestly. If being human means that we don't have exhaustive knowledge, that we don't have absolute control, that we will face death, and that means judgment, then, then we should, in dependence on God, seek his wisdom all the more. But how do you distinguish between human wisdom, which is your own understanding, and God's wisdom? And a familiar passage will, will help us. I mean, you guys know it. Some of you know it by heart. Proverbs 3, 5 to 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Now, are we trusting in ourselves, in, in our abilities? Uh, are we asking the kind of questions that have answers that belong to God alone, that, that we have no control over? Are we seeking wisdom that exalts us and our name? Or is the wisdom that we're seeking intended to exalt God and his name? Are we acknowledging God in all our ways in every matter of wisdom? Are we consistently and earnestly bringing up the matter before the Lord? And how are we doing that? How are, how are we praying? Are we fearing Yahweh, which means turning away from evil? 
Do we know what is good and what is evil? Do we know his commands, what it is to please him? Do we not just know his words? Because we are apt to forget them. Do we also store his words in our heart? Are we repeatedly reminding ourselves of his commands and are we turning to Christ? Because he says in Colossians 2, 3, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is what it means to see God and his wisdom earnestly. Um, I want to quote a, a paragraph um, in the same chapter on wisdom um, by J.I. Packer. It's in the book, Knowing God. Um, he says this, Again, it is to be feared that many today who profess to be Christ's never learn wisdom through failure to attend sufficiently to God's written word. Cramer's prayer book lectionary will, will take one through, will take a person through the Old Testament once and the New Testament twice every year. William Gouge, the Puritan, read 15 chapters regularly each day. The late Archdeacon T.C. Hammond used to read right through the Bible once a quarter. How long is it since he read right through the Bible? And do you spend as much time with the Bible each day as you do even with the newspaper? What fools some of us are, and we remain fools all our lives simply because we will not take the trouble to do what has to be done to receive the wisdom, which is God's free gift. Secondly, a practical application is to remember death, uh, which means that we should pray for wisdom constantly, every day. Psalm 90 verse 12, Moses writes this. He says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So by remembering death, we're not trying to be morbid. The reason we remember death is so that we can be wise, so that we can be sober-minded, because death means judgment. The very last verse of Ecclesiastes, it says, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And someday, you and I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I mean, our sins will all have been atoned for. We will be clothed with his righteousness. But we must know that how you and I live today still matters for eternity. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 2.17, he's writing to believers. He says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Remember death because death means impartial righteous judgment. And this is a good thing if we live day to day in godly wisdom. And that's why we ought to be praying for wisdom day to day constantly because we want to live every day of our lives to be pleasing to him so third application wisdom as gift not gain therefore we should thank god for wisdom and, and enjoy wise living with hope uh, ecclesiastes 2 26 this is the last section of, of chapter 2 he says for to the one who pleases him god has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. And uh, in Proverbs 3, 6, uh, again, Solomon, he says, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Romans 8, um, Paul talks about how creation has been cursed. And he says this, 
he says in verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is saying what um, Solomon, what, what the preacher says in Ecclesiastes 1, that God is the one um, who has cursed the creation, subjected to futility, but he did it in hope. He did it in hope. Because when we um, are, are redeemed fully, then creation itself also will be set free. Um, and that's why we can look forward to that day. We can live today wisely with hope because we're heading for a time when God who sits on the throne, when he will say, behold, I am making all things new. So I want to close with this uh, illustration. I've often wondered why, um, why Solomon, who was the wisest man on earth at the time, why he did not heed his own counsel. And I think this is a, a really um, sobering example of the main idea of our text. Wisdom cannot solve the enigma of life under heaven. And this is one of those enigmas. How could Solomon have fallen so badly? His wisdom early in life did not guarantee wisdom toward the end of his life. Um, if we, I'll read it. But in 1 Kings 11, it describes what happened to Solomon. And I'll read some verses there. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. Verse 3, he had 700 wives who were princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Verse 4, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So what is the Lord's response? Verse 9, and the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Why do you think that this account of Solomon is here? And in one sense, I think that's trying to answer the question, you know, why this enigma? Um, but I think we can exercise sanctified imagination. Um, and I think clearly the greatest reason, I believe, is that this shows that this son of David failed to be the promised son of David, the coming king. Um, but I think another reason why um, this is recorded for us is to show that you can start off well, but wisdom in your college years doesn't guarantee that you will always be wise. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. We must be growing in the fear of the Lord. Then, by God's grace, we'll be growing in wisdom. Let me close in prayer. Father, we tremble before you and before your word. God, it, it, it gives life to us, but it also exposes 
our sins and it can crush us, Lord. It can pierce our hearts. But Father, it is when we are humbled by your word that we are given life. Father, I do ask that for each of us here, even tonight in our small groups discussion, and as we continue to seek after you and your word and your wisdom, I pray that you would grant that wisdom to us. Father, because life is an enigma and it is difficult. It is hard. It is worrisome, um, this life under heaven. Father, and we need, we need your help desperately, Lord. We praise you. We love you. pray that you would bless our small group discussion. In your son's precious name, amen.